maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, podcast listeners. Before we go to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about an upcoming event we have next week with Oscar award-winning actor Kate Winslet on our award-winning series How I Found My Voice. If you'd like to join Kate Winslet and Samira Ahmed and ask your questions about her life and career, you can do so next week on February 10th. And we have a special offer for all our podcast listeners. Just go to the Intelligence Squared website via the link in the podcast description and use the discount code KATE, that's K-A-T-E, for 50% off and ask all your questions on the Titanic, the reader and everything in between. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we have a very special guest for you, it's Elliot Higgins, founder of the investigative outlet Bellingcat, which has exposed some of the biggest scandals and stories in recent memory. From working with Alexei Navalny to expose the Russian state's involvement in his poisoning just last year, to proving that Assad used chemical weapons in Syria, Elliot and Bellingcat have been at the forefront of exposing global crime. In the episode, he spoke to Manveen Rana, a senior investigative journalist at The Times and Sunday Times, and host of the excellent podcast Stories of Our Times. And if you do enjoy this episode and want to dig a bit deeper into the themes discussed, you can find a link for Elliot's excellent new book, We Are Bellingcat, in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Manveen Rana, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Elliot Higgins, founder of the investigative journalism outlet Bellingcat. Elliot first blazed onto the scene in 2012 when, as Brown Moses, he became an essential resource for every journalist covering the Syrian war. Bellingcat was established in 2014 and has since won the Hans-Joachim Friedrichs Prize in 2015, the European Press Prize for Innovation in 2017, the European Press Prize for Investigation in 2019 and the London Press Club Award for Digital Journalism in 2019. He's also the author of this brand new book, We Are Bellingcat, an intelligence agency for the people, which I heartily recommend. Elliot... It's a delight to be able to talk to you about this riveting insider's guide to covering some of the biggest stories of recent times. It's called We Are Bellingcat. Who do you mean by we? I mean, there's quite a few different we's in We Are Bellingcat. And I think it's really, in a sense, everyone, everyone who's connected online, everyone who communicates with each other has a chance to participate in what we're doing as Bellingcat. So... You know, even now we're building a volunteer section. We're working on these collaborative investigations. 
And it's really become like a really big thing for us. It just working with other people and, you know, trying to connect to people. Citizen journalism in its newest form. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's been a real journey for me coming from quite an ordinary background to what I'm doing now. And I'm, you know, just very excited that, you know, I've been able to share this experience with people, really. Well, tell me about that, because chapter one is called Revolution on a Laptop. Tell us a bit about your background and, and what you meant by that phrase. I mean, of course, I think the big moment in the development of the kind of field of open source investigation that really was the you know very first moment we really saw it become something much bigger than just a very small number of people doing it in public was the Arab Spring and with Libya. So we had this great moment of conflict where suddenly we had so many people on the ground sharing information. And I think I was very lucky to kind of, in a way, surf the wave of that, you know, be one of the first people to realise you could do this kind of stuff, you know, what we do at Balancat with this material. So that was really kind of, the, in a way, the genesis of what the movement became today. How did that come about? How, what was the moment when you realised that you, as somebody who wasn't at the time a trained journalist, could actually make a difference you could you could find information that other people weren't getting well i think the idea that i could do something and the idea i could make a difference were two quite separate things because <laughs> i did i thought i could do things but making a difference i didn't really think about because at first it was more it's it just you know engaging with people online and debating you know what you know the facts were there was a video that would come from libya and people would argue whether or not it was actually filmed where it was claimed to have been filmed or somewhere else and I wanted to answer that question because fundamentally it was like th about the truth of that kind of item. And I just thought, well, I can use satellite imagery. I can use other resources to find exactly, you know, it was a simple thing, but that kind of started me on the journey that I'm on today, really. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for, you know, these conflicts happen happening just at the right moment where smartphone technology had really, you know, taken uh, you know, up across the world. It made everyone connected. And, you know, it was, it was thanks to what happened in 2007 and eight with the iPhone being launched. And what that started happening is more and more smartphones being released, more and more social media usage. And it was just at that right moment the Arab Spring happened and then there's just this explosion of information. And I think I was just very lucky to, you know, just latch onto it then, you know, unintentionally, and then just see it develop from there. What you do so deftly is work out, you know, in all of that sort of the storm of information people are getting these days, you work out what's real and what isn't. How did you how did you go about honing a process where you knew how to do that? Because most of us are sort of slightly lost in, in the torrent of information we're sort of facing all the time. Well, I, I did. I'm someone who you would say is very online. So even back then, I was spending a lot of time on the internet. But I, I kind of came from actually more of a kind of online gamer community and that kind of early forum culture that spawned things like 4chan and those monsters that we kind of have to deal with nowadays. But that kind of gave me... An, I just think I was someone who was kind of more of an online person than an offline person. I thrived on the online world. And that's where I spent a lot of time. And I was interested kind of long-term in the kind of um, international politics, especially US-focused. I've you know, grown up reading people like Seymour Hersh and John Pilger in the UK and uh, moving on to kind of Noam Chomsky in my teenage years, which were bookended by the first invasion of the Gulf, first Gulf War and then the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So it kind of really all came from those experiences, I think, in the long term. And you said it took, it was a, a very different moment from your realising you could do something and your realising that you could really make a difference. When did that happen? When did you realise the power of what you could do? The first time in a, because I was kind of ended up becoming a frustrated journalist by doing this because in the first year, I was very often, slowly over time, seeing what I was putting on my blog, the Brown Moses blog, which was one named after a Frank Zappa song completely randomly, which I kind of semi-regret now because it was too weird. It, I guess it gave me a certain mystique early on. And um, <laughs> yes. so you just had this incredible amount of information that no one else had found and I was like posting blog posts about it and then newspapers would start using it and that was very exciting there would be this video comes from the Brown Moses blog it, these tiny credits but they all all drove traffic to my site more and more journalists got to know about me and that then led me to basically an investigation where I discovered that these Croatian weapons were being smuggled to rebels in Syria. And I discovered that by watching YouTube videos effectively. And that ended up on the front page of the New York Times. And that's kind of when I realised in a journalistic way it could happen. That's impact. a result. 
Yeah. And then a few months later, because of that, I had my first big interview in The Guardian. It's the first time I ever did an interview. I was really nervous because it was just like completely new to me being interviewed like that. Not like now, obviously. But it was really just like this really intense moment for me because it was like The Guardian one week. And then the following week, every day of the week, I had a different news crew coming to film me in my home where all the, it, I just all of a sudden had this attention that I've never experienced before. And for me, I was quite introverted and shy. So this was very intense. So this is also like, okay, this is really, it was like a shocking moment for me as a person. How, how um, was that? How did you, how did you cope with it? With all the was, attention? Well, it was like, I remember being at work because I had a completely different career before this working in business administration, uh, being in the office and like talking to someone because we've been downsized so much. I've been downsized into a tiny office in an apartment, a brand new flat. So it was really leaky. It was like really badly built. It was, there was literally water running down the uh, entranceways. It was awful. And it was me and this other uh, woman. And I remember just saying to her, um, I'm, I'm going to be on the BBC now talking about um, IEDs in Syria. Can I just <laughs> use one of the empty apartments to have this call? It was just... So, it, and it felt like, you know, you kind of look insane when you, <laughs> that starts happening to you. And you just ordinary people, you know, you say, by the way, I just have to call the BBC to talk about uh, ISIS. I'll be just off in a second. So, yeah, there's that effect. And then I went to this um, uh, tactical tech, uh, an organisation in Berlin who trains activists, took me to, uh, invited me to this camp in Italy, in the mountains near, I think, Lake Casa, maybe that might be... My name, memory for names is terrible, because so it could not even be Cassie, it could be anything. So they invited me there with loads of activists, and they were just amazing people. They were like people who really stood up to these terrible re- regimes they lived in. And I was just thought, well, I'm just at home on my laptop. I felt really like, I don't compare to these people at all. I'm just looking at YouTube videos and drawing coloured boxes around pictures and stuff like that. And it was... It was really, like, humbling, I think, in one sense, because it was like, you were... They were all around, but they... For some reason, they asked me to run one of the training threads where there was me, Paul Radley from the OCCRP and a few other people who were like the um, leaders of the group. And we had to teach them our particular investigative skills. And it was really amazing for me to see these people who were like really, like Paul Radley was like a really brilliant investigator and brave. And that was kind of, you know, like, wow. And alongside that, I did my presentation and thinking this is going to be rubbish. And they're going to hate it because it's just some pictures on YouTube of these all like really amazing people. And they was just responded so positively to it. And like by the end of the camp, they were already setting up a group to identify riot IDs that were in open source imagery from riots. Just from that kind of interaction and just kind of getting involved straight away. And that made me realize that actually this work can, you know, really be spread and used by other people for other things. And that it can be taken seriously by people who actually kind of will use it and has a have a better reason than using it than winning arguments on the internet. So I think that was kind of like just seeing that so close together, I think that really kind of inspired my trajectory for what I wanted to do with Bellingcat in the future. Take me on to that. You know, how did you decide what you were going to focus on? Because quite quickly, sort of after you'd, you'd been covering the Syrian war day in, day out, you, you, you seem to focus in on Russia in particular. I mean, Bellingcat has become a real thorn in the side of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. And back in 2014, you published a series of reports demonstrating how the deployment of a, a book missile launcher used to shoot down the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 over Ukraine involved senior officers of the Russian Ministry of Defence, which was a huge moment. You know, None of that had, had come out before. How did you get interested in that investigation and how did you go about proving that the Russian state had been involved? Immediately after that incident occurred, there was um, just a whole community of people who kind of organically emerged from the, you know, just from nowhere. Some made up of just Ukrainians who were interested in what happened, Russian people, they had their own kind of language communities, but they connected with people, you know, in the West as well who were interested. And it was such a huge moment. It drew all these different people together and they started just hunting for every scrap of information they could find on what happened. They were like this beautiful kind of organic search engine that we're looking for just one thing and i saw i kind of saw that happening very early on and one of these videos emerged um it shows a what looks like a book missile launch which was something at that point i barely knew about it was just like a kind of green box on treads going somewhere and i i saw that video and i just shared it i said you know a gold star to the first person who can geolocate this 
because I already had a kind of community around me that kind of loved doing those kind of things. And Bellingcat had launched three days earlier. So we already had a kind of focus on open source investigation because I'd been trying to kind of talk about it as much as possible at that point. And then just this thing happened, which was just, just, it was this awful event. But unlike Syria, it wasn't somewhere where there was kind of restricted internet access, where you had, you know, five or six videos of an incident. You had like the entire internet of the area, like a huge detection system. And it was kind of just figuring out how to, in a way, read that detection system, know where to look to figure something out. You know, how to geolocate something, how to then kind of use the shadows to tell the time of day, which allowed us then to construct the first route out of five or six videos and photographs. And we could follow that route for Eastern Ukraine, which was then supplemented by other posts we found, people discussing it, that you know, with timestamps that matched with the whole route. So we started kind of building, finding the kind of skeleton of what we were looking for and then started discovering more information that kind of built around those key moments. And we did that as a community of amateurs who just wanted to understand what had happened. And very early on, I recognized that some people were kind of better at this than other people. I mean, some people were drawing conclusions that were wrong all the time. Some were get, doing really stuff. And one, uh, one of them was Eric Toller. He had followed my work for a while and he didn't really kind of hadn't really communicated with me before, but he showed me one of the he said shared one of the photographs of this missile launcher on the trailer and he said, I know where this is and this is how I figured it out. And I asked, can I write this up in a post for the um, for Bellingcat? And he said yes, and he, we had a conversation. And that was kind of the first moment, I guess, of the forming of what became the Bellingcat investigation team, because then he started doing that more and more. And we, a couple of other people started doing that. And we built this kind of core of a team of just people who were talking to each other about it all the time. I think we seemed to, I guess, have the same flow. We were working at the same pace. We were online about the same time. And we just kind of came together. And we, um, you know, just wrote articles, basically. We looked at YouTube videos. We looked at photographs and just searched, searched for every single post we could find. And we had, then we had the uh, route. It was traveling to the launch site, which was documented with multiple sources. And then we realized you could actually connect it to, to Russia. And you could do that by examining those missile launches very, very carefully indeed. Fascinating. And it's a hell of a start for Bellingcat as an organization. Is that how it works now? I mean, is, it, is there sort of um, a, a permanent team or is it sort of a loose association of people who come in and out for different investigations? Well, over the last couple of years, we have professionalised a lot and grown quite a bit. So we now have charity status in the Netherlands. So that means that we have kind of audit requirements and, you know, we have to have a, um, you know, transparency, a supervisory board and a structure that makes us transparent. And it means that I can't just go off and do whatever I want. I have a supervisory board and, you know, and there is a reason to that because I don't want to end up not like an organisation like too top heavy where there's someone at the top of the organization whose photograph ends up on other people's twitter profiles you know that kind of person i don't want any kind of it to be centralized around me because i don't want you know all of this to be centralized around bellingcat because bellingcat is really just a node in a network and we want to develop that network because it means that if there's more people like bellingcat more organizations like that you know, not not under our control, doing their own thing, but doing it with these same kind of skills and resources, then I think we'd kind of all be better off because we'd have a better idea of what was going on, hopefully. that And all these videos and photographs that I see that I can't investigate, and I know there could be something there, other people can do themselves. They don't have to just rely on kind of one point of weakness, which is, you know, Bellingcat having to do everything. And I think that's what really drives us to train as many people as possible, get involved, do collaborative work. And I think that's really the core of what Bellingcat is now. And, and that training, I mean, what were the lessons that you learned from investigations like MH17 that have shaped your investigations in the future? What are the core skills that you, you teach people? Well, I mean, there's, uh, it's, it's really teaching people the tools in the toolbox and how to use them. And in a training session, we'd be starting off with something quite simple like geolocation and using Google satellite imagery. And we've got straightforward examples. We go through them one by one. We introduce new tools one by one. And as we're kind of showing them what to do, we're showing them how to combine different skills together as well, because that's what we do. We look at a problem and we know from our experience, from doing all these investigations, the different possible tools that could be used for it and the kind of sequence to use them in to get to the quickest result. 
But if you're new to it, it looks terrifying. It's like, okay, I've got Google Street View over there, Google Earth here. Oh, I've got to keep this window open. Oh, I've closed it. Oh, you've got you've got so many things going in your head. But we try to kind of ease people in. And then we'll, at the kind of last two days, we have the best part of the workshops when we're doing them in person, which sadly isn't possible at the moment, where we have two days where we actually do investigations with them. We give them the tools and then we join them on investigations they want to do themselves. And that can have really interesting results. It doesn't always work, as you can imagine. But sometimes there's really interesting stuff that comes up. And sometimes just the process itself of doing the investigation is a really educational experience and something it's very hard to get once you leave a training and you kind of, you know, don't have the opportunity to apply it in your own work with a group like that again. So we really want to spread those skills and kind of get as many people using them as possible. Well, Bellingcat has grown and grown and after those early successes with MH17 you've gone on to do some fairly phenomenal things I mean you helped to expose both GRU agents who were responsible for the Novichok poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury and the kill team behind the poisoning of Alexei Navalny why have you been able to to prove these things that traditional media you know couldn't come anywhere close to I mean, I, I don't know how much the intelligence service is new, but you, you seem to be ahead of the game. How, how does that, how do you do that? Well, I think all the credit really needs to go to the work of Christo Grozev, who is actually a volunteer at Balancat and does this as a hobby, <laughs> exposing all these Russian spies. He's a really brilliant investigator. He was the one who kind of started figuring out the first pieces of the puzzle back when we were looking at um, the Scripple case, because he had looked into a attempted coup in Montenegro and he was kind of interested in Russian foreign spy activity. And what was interesting about that is one of these suspects was a GRU officer who was arrested with his fake ID and real ID. And this was kind of Christo's first in to these people's identities, because those identities had similarities. They had the same first name, the same date of birth and the same place of birth. So when the names and place of births and the other details of the scriffle suspects came out, he started comparing them to these leaked databases from Russia, because there's all this leaked information from Russia that you can just cope, find online. It's fairly difficult, but it's not impossible. We're not talking going on the dark web and hunting about anything because, you know, spy-like as that is out there. But they have lots of information like, you know, passport registration numbers or house registrations. And what this allowed Christo to do is find identities that shared the same first name, birth date and place of birth as one of the suspects. And when he had that list, which was only about 11 people in a, you know, a population of hundreds of thousands, he then was able to search on social media for those people and discovered that most of those people existed, but one of them didn't. And when he found the one who didn't, he was able, and this is something that we've done at Bellingcat only in this case because it is literally a nerve agent assassination program so it does you know it might cross the line but i think it's uh, for a good reason we paid for information uh from an information broker in russia because russia is a very leaky state how does that work people... so you, you can literally go on google if you know the correct keywords you'll find some russian internet forum where someone says i can get you give me a passport number pay 200 rubles i'll get you something like a their flight details it's used by you know crooks for various stuff it's used by you know husbands and wives to make sure their partners are where they're meant to be according to their phone records so this is what we took advantage of this christo knew about this i had no idea this existed but christo thought maybe this is the way to do it he got the passport registration document for his domestic passport of this one guy with a match and his photograph on that was exactly the same person who was in the Russia Today interview. And I think that was on the same day we found that out. So we already knew these guys were Russian spies. And then we found out Russia Today was going to interview them. So we were watching this with the knowledge that Russia Today were interviewing two GRU officers. And we had the actual proof that this was the case. So, I mean, that was all down to Christo. And he's, you know, uh, you know he's an outstanding investigator. And he, we really owe a lot to him and his work. And how about the Navalny case? How did you find the kill team? Well, that kind of continued on what we were doing before by looking, get, getting this information. Christo eventually managed to discover Russia's secret nerve agent program, which I say is a small thing, but that's only because I know it'll take me around over 15 minutes to explain that one. So he discovered there were phone calls from people involved with the scripple poisoning with a chemistry lab. And this chemistry lab was meant to make sports nutrition drinks. 
and they did not make sports nutrition drinks because all the kind of main scientists there were former members of the Russian Novichok program. And it was like... Great cover. Just this ins- yeah, it was just this insane story. And especially when you consider the Scripple suspects said they were sports nutrition salesmen. And you, then, you kind of wonder if that was, you know, an in-joke they were kind of playing in the interview. That's, that's where they got their uh, poison from, the sports nutrition factory. So we then discovered that around the time Navani was poisoned, the guys who were working at the factories started calling up an FSB team. And we looked into the FSB team because we can buy their phone records, detailed phone records from just these sources in Russia. So, you know, Russia is the most open society in the world. They just don't want to be. So you've got to, you've just got to imagine there's all this information. And poor Christo, it's like every day he gets a kind of new set of information and a new set of leads. And even now with the Navalny poisoning, last week he identified three more people who were assassined, two uh, activists from the Caucasus region and one of the official opposition in Russia. And these were not big threats to Putin like Navalny is. So you start wondering who are, are they targeting? And we've already discovered, and we'll release this in the next couple of weeks, more targets who are even in the entertainment business. So, yeah, it's like all levels of Russian society seem to have been targeted by this team. And it sounds like I'm a, maybe a rambling lunatic, but we've got really good evidence of this. And we can you, you could come to Christo's house and look through the evidence page by page and see where it's all coming from. We've got just all the details because Russia is a really corrupt police state and it enables its own undermining through this. Do you worry that by publishing this, some of those loopholes, some of those places where you're finding the information will be closed? The state will get onto it? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, when we first looked into the scripple poisoning and we revealed that we had these identity documents, these um, registration forms for the domestic passports, after we published that, we started looking to some more GRU officers and weirdly, all their photographs had been removed from those documents. And that didn't happen to anyone else's documents outside of the GRU list we had. So they were clearly going back and removing the information. We've also had laws passed in Russia about soldiers no longer being allowed to share photographs of their service online because clearly, I mean, you can see the direct line between what we did yeah. with that with MH17 and Russia's involvement in Ukraine and the wider open source community. And I, I think there are real effects of this. But on the other hand, in a way, we're glad that, you know, for example, Facebook graph search, probably some people are groaning hearing that, but Facebook graph search was an amazing research tool for open source investigators. You could find people for their likes and dislikes and really find profiles of people. And it was great for finding really obscure groups and really obscure individuals. And we could find terrorists, we could find all kinds of people doing that. Um, Unfortunately, Cambridge Analytica came along and used it to seemingly influence Brexit. And that tool was then removed. And it was a real loss to the open source community, but a clear positive outcome for society as a whole. So sometimes it's okay to lose some of these tools because we're dealing with these kind of almost, well, too invasive tools, I think you could maybe agree in many circumstances. Is it going to be much harder for you to expose things in Russia in the future, though, if they do start? Shutting these down. Um, I don't think so because there's enough. This we. I think the thing is we're in the kind of like a real golden age for what's available at the moment, mm. and we might be at that like you, hundred and twenty percent of what's possible. And if there's a retraction down to a hundred percent, just because we always kind of we had this moment of excitement at the start of this kind of field of investigation and this, this complete wild west attitude to you know the online world where so much personal information is being shared and shared with companies and shared with everyone else in the world. We just really have to realise kind of the world we're in is very different from when we where we are ten years ago. And we've got to take advantage of that as a society. Otherwise we're going to be left to QAnon conspiracy theorists attacking the Capitol building on January 6th, you know, time and time again, because we'll be going, why are these people so crazy? What's happening? And it's because it's these massive changes that have happened because of, you know, basically smartphones, <laughs> because it's made us all so much more connected and just at a time where there's a lot of turmoil. With all of your investigations around Russia and particularly the latest Navalny ones, you know, we've seen that he's been, he's facing charges in court is is going to be facing three and a half years in prison. Do you ever worry about your own safety after so clearly going for the Kremlin? I mean, to an extent, but I just, I just hope that kind of our work and our kind of high profile work 
it kind of just protects us a bit from these kind of dangers because that's all we've got. I'm not going to fight off a team of GRU officers with karate or anything like that. That's just not within my skill set as a researcher. So I just have to kind of accept that this is, you know, the risks we take and it's worthwhile doing this. I believe in the work Bellingcat is doing. I know it does expose us to some danger, but not the same danger that Navalny faces. I mean, he's been poisoned with a secret nerve agent which is just a completely bizarre thing to say, but it's happening in Russia today. It'll probably happen again if the international community doesn't react and try and actually address this issue. So personally, I'm aware of that, that it would be nice if the international community could, you know, say, Russia, please don't poison people, but they aren't. And they really put everyone at risk for doing that, including myself. And do you get a lot of I mean, I've, I've sort of seen you get a lot of cyber abuse too, and I know you, you're sort of some, sometimes hounded in at public events. How has all of that played out? Were you expecting that kind of a response? I mean, it's if I'm honest, I don't hate coronavirus. Well, I hate it a bit less because I don't have to worry about those people at the moment. I'm safe at home and not going to those events. But towards, how much of a problem uh, did it become? Well. In the Netherlands, I started doing quite a lot of events, I think, in uh, just before the lockdown. And like every event, there was like something that was going wrong or something weird was happening. So it was small stuff, but you would have there's this video blogger called Graham Phillips, who is just he really hates me. And at that point, he was fairly obsessed with uh, me. And he uh, was angry about MH17 because he was a video blogger who was in eastern Ukraine. And he started signing up to all my events like going on the guest list and because he's very confrontational and he's kind of like um do you know timothy treadwell in grizzly man if you've ever seen the Hard, watch it it's him but on syria not bears so he he was quite upset with me and it was getting a bit weird i had dutch police standing at the door of my events just in case he turned up because they were so worried about my safety and the events themselves were usually fine. I had one, there's one guy once who asked a question. He was, it was this re- event on a window into Russia, talking about Russia from, you know, Bellingcat's work. And we had a Russian uh, journalist there as well. A very nice event, big audience. First question is a guy saying, oh, one of your staff members was mean to me on Twitter. And everyone just was like, you could hear this sigh. And I said, and he said, oh, this is his handle. And I was like, I didn't recognize it. It wasn't one of my staff members. I just said, I'm sorry, I, I don't know who that is. And then he went, but but he says he works for Bellingcat. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't think he does. I'm sorry. And everyone just kind of sat there silently and sat down. And then it was like, okay, any more questions? But it's just these, it just was every event was like that. And it's okay. It's not like anything bad happened. But as things got crazier with the Scripple story, obviously I was getting more and more worried about Russia's attention. And I mean, it's one thing to release one story about that, but we were releasing them like every two weeks, some new revelation about that. And we were getting the Russian ambassador to the UK saying that Bellingcat is the CIA or, or working for the British intelligence services and that we're part of the British deep establishment. His exact words. I don't want to misquote him because that'll be a Russia Today article. It, it, it's, it gets scary because you don't know what these mindsets of these people are like. You don't know if someone's going to think, well, he's a, Rus- a, a British spy, I'm going to stab him and you know, save, save Syria or something like that. Because you do have these people with quite extreme personalities who become part of these online communities that we're all worried about today, like the QAnon movement. And that's why I think I see a lot of parallels between different online communities and how they're developed and where the kind of, problem of problems of conspiracy theory communities really comes from because it's the same with syria you get people who become this just radicalized by being anti-white helmets it's weird thing to be radicalized by but they won't broach they won't let anyone disagree with them and if you're in that group and you disagree you're out and it just becomes more and more extreme and the internet is the perfect tool for doing that to people especially bored people who are locked in their houses because of coronavirus so i think that's where a lot of the opposition to Bellingcat is coming from as well. And it's kind of interesting to be part of that because I've been targeted by that for so long. You just, you're like, wow, this is just like an amazing thing to observe as someone who works in disinformation. And there's the work of people like Kate Starbird, which I think really leads the way in this area, which I think people should really look up because I think it's really essential to understanding basically what the internet is nowadays and why it's terrible in many senses, 
but how it actually interacts with the work of Bellingham, for example. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. Elliot, I just wanted to ask, what do you think traditional media can learn from what Bellingcat does? Well, I think the most successful people in using open source investigation ha have been the uh, New York Times team and the BBC Africa team. And they've done some really amazing award-winning work using open source investigations. And we all kept come from actually the same small community, the, you know, Bellingcat's Christian Triver, he joined uh, the New York Times team. Two of our volunteers joined the BBC team. So we kind of transferred our skills to that group. But they're already made up of some of the, especially the New York Times team was made up of some of the best kind of, of the original open source investigators from 2011. They put together a really fantastic team and they were awarded, you know, you know, they won a Pulitzer Prize for their work and they produced fantastic journalism. And I think that's probably more than Bellingcat has shown other news organisations what you can do with this stuff. But that's really kind of great to see that, you know, things are expanding and changing in that way. And I think you need to commit as a news organisation to have a dedicated team because you can't do this part-time because I think open source investigators are quite obsessive. So probably wouldn't even function part-time because they would always have to be doing the investigation. And I think that's Never what stops. news organisations have to realise. They have to find the right kind of people and they can do really amazing work. Now, I would love to keep asking you questions, but I, I, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to move to, to some of the ones from the audience. And I'm going to begin with one from Michael Solomon. It's a great question. Where did the name come from? So I'm terrible at coming up with names. I'm really uncreative, unfortunately. And when I wanted to start a new website going on from the Brown Moses blog, I wanted a completely different name, not one that was associated with my online name, because I wanted it to have... Because I was always getting people asking to write for my blog, my early Brown Roses blog, and they would never get the credit because it would always be referred back to me as the author because it was a really bad web layout, basically. And it was hard to see who was doing the articles. And I thought that was unfair. So I wanted a site that didn't have my name associated with it and would be a place where people could come to me and submit articles and we'd have resources and we'd build that kind of community. But I was coming up with names like uh, the open source and, you know, just really boring, stupid names. So I, I called up a friend of mine and he suggested Belling the Cat, which is based off a fable where there's a group of mice who are frightened of a large, ferocious cat. And they say, um, they, they have like a meeting somehow. They're mice, they have a meeting. Uh, they and they decide among themselves that they should put a bell on the cat's neck. But then they realise they don't have a plan to do that. So what we're doing is teaching people how to bell the cat. So when people say, oh, you're the cats from Ben and Cats. Now I'm like, no, we're the mice, I suppose. <laughs> not the cats. We're not the cats. The cats are bad. 
Yeah, I love that. You want much, much more comfortable being known as the mice. <laughs> we've we've got a question here, which t- tell us as much as you can, really. But is Bellingcat looking into the GRU and FSB Russian units that are have been involved with the Solar Winds hack? Is that something you're involved with? I'm afraid we've not really been looking into that. The Navalny case is such a big case, mm. and Christo is really our. I'm not going to say he's our only person because that might be in trouble for him. He's one of many people who we work with who is a, are able to do the investigation, but they're all stretched to their limit at the moment. And we can't really, I'd love to look into it, but sometimes you just stumble across stuff. And Christo does this all the time. He's just looking into someone and then he stumbles onto a completely different kind of GRU plot happening somewhere else in the world. And it might not even be like another assassination. It could be like some fraud or something, but he just, but that's what's so exciting about doing this work is kind of, you know, always stumbling across new plots. So maybe one day we'll be like doing an article and it say, we found a link between that and the script poisoning. Who knows? It all links up in the end. There's a question here from Marie Christine Purdy. Could you please give your assessment of, you mentioned them already, but the white helmets and the death of, of James Nemesura? Well, I, I should start by saying that James and his wife Emma are both friends of mine and we had spent some time together, not a huge amount because he was in Istanbul and I was in Leicester but we would meet meet at events sometimes or we would be in town at the same time and meet up and have a you know a drink or have a chat um I knew that it was weighing on him a lot the treatment he was getting kind of online from the Russia what that was kind of building up to the anti-white helmets community but I he never came across as the sort of person who kind of would do that to himself so when we first heard about that it was frightening for us because we kind of see him as kind of the same level as Bellingcat. He's not like someone who's kind of really untouchable in the way some people are. And we thought if that could, if James was, you know, murdered, God forbid, then that, you know, we, we were worried. And that's one time I kind of contacted the police about my safety because I thought, Oh God, if they, they, this is what that is because we really weren't sure. And then over time, it seems clearer and clearer, you know, it, it's what happened, something different. And that was hard to accept as well. And I think it really upset a lot of people, you know, you know, myself, other people at Bellingcat as well. And it's just been very hard to know that there's still people who, when he died, were having a laugh about it on the internet because they thought the White Helmets were part of some conspiracy. And I think that's the kind of thing we need to fight against, against you know, as a community, because... I don't want to live in a world that's populated by people like that. And I'd rather change people's minds that, you know, go to war with them. So I just hope that we haven't gone so far that we have to, you know, be doomed to listen to those kind of people tell us that our friends' deaths were, you know, a good thing ever again. There's, um, There's a question here from James West, who asks, when you're collaborating with people... How do you mitigate the danger of foreign intelligence services trying to infiltrate and influence your investigations and potentially to sabotage them? Well, I mean, this is something we worry in, about in particular on the GRU investigations and the FSB investigations, because we're looking for information that you know is assumedly on government servers and can be changed. And we know it's been changed. So we're always looking out for things that are suspicious. We always try and find another source that's completely independent, like maybe an offline database from several years earlier. We can cross-reference against the information to see if anything's been altered or something has been removed. And it does happen. We had even photographs altered when we were looking into identity documents. They had swapped around the photographs of FSB officers with other people. For some reason, and we've never figured out why this is, we figured it out because the photograph they swapped it to for the man we were looking for was a woman's photograph. So we had no idea. So, yeah, I mean, they do change it. We know they do that kind of stuff. So we're very, very cautious. I mean, it might not always come across in our work because we don't want to, like, bore you to death with every single little detail of what we do. But if we're using a source, we're always trying to find two or three other independent ways of verifying that one piece of information. And sometimes when you're dealing with Russian spies, it's very hard to find. But it's, you know, I came praising Christo, but he's just so methodical about finding every single possible hole in their armour. 
you know, everywhere they could have made a mistake. And he just finds it time and time after again. It's always some silly little thing they've done that shows up on some database that probably one person in the world has looked at since, you know, 2015. It's just these really, but it shows that if you really dig, you can verify this stuff to such level. And that's why I don't worry about the information being changed that much because we spot it, we see it and we verify everything we do to a very high standard because of that. Ewan asks, would Bellingcat be prepared to work with intelligence agencies, you know, given that a lot of the things that you're finding are obviously of interest to them too, or is that off limits? Is there ever any kind of to and fro? I'm going to say no, but I do know in the minds of some people on the internet, intelligence agencies can be quite a broad definition. So to be clear... We have worked with the joint investigation team in relation to MH17 because we were finding evidence on the internet that by revealing could make it disappear. And we want to let them know that we were doing this. So that's the kind of interaction we would have with an intelligence agency in the most broadest sense of the term. If we find information on a terrorist bomber, we will contact the police. If we think we can stop a crime, like revealing the identity of FSB poisoners to the world, we will take steps to do that. But we, you know... We, we are as careful as we can not to expose people unnecessarily. I think that's really, we, we try to be really careful. I mean, even in the kind of work we're doing on, uh, you know, January 6th at the moment, we've been very careful with who we're working with, making sure they're not overexposed in any way that could harm them. So, you know, that's kind of a real focus of what we're doing at the moment. We've got a, an anonymous question here, which just asks, is Russia unique or does the same open source approach work in other countries like America or even here? Russia is unique in the sense that they have all that leaked information that just doesn't exist anywhere else we've looked. And in one sense, I kind of, if it did, I think we'd all be in trouble, to be honest with you, because that's a lot of information to be leaked all over the world. But yeah, it's really not anything we've seen anywhere else. I mean, there's other information in other parts of the world, different types of information that are useful in different ways, where there's more open societies, but Russia is just open and they don't mean to be. So, yeah, there's absolutely, uh, it, it just seems completely unique in the world. And it's just bizarre that this huge, powerful nation is just so weak, really down to the, you know, the core of its being, that it's just leaking this information everywhere. Um, Stephen Murphy asks, and this almost links really, but Edward Snowden, hero or villain? Given where you stand on open source and open information, what do you make of I, I... Snowden? I think he's a hero because of what he revealed. He was put in a bad situation and that required you know, going to Russia. But given his options as a human being, I mean, I think most people in his situations would consider the Russia option as brave as they think they are not to kind of, you know, not be in jail forever. So, yeah, I, I, I have sympathy with him and I kind of don't, you know, I have nothing against him, I would say. But, you know, I'm not one of these people who put someone on an idol and starts cheering for them because you you find that leads to cults of personalities, which I always find rather off-putting. But did it make you wonder about whether there should be any limits to the sort of information that's available? Well, I mean, it's available to who, really? I mean, we're worried Mm. about the intelligence agencies knowing everything about our lives, but so does Netflix. And, you know, it uses that to recommend us films. And to be honest, I'm glad that it does, because, you know, after you've been in lockdown for a while, you need some new (laughs) stuff to watch. So I think people... I always think of it this kind of, you know, idea that if you were told that every time you went to Amazon you'd be recommended something you wanted to buy. That Every time you went to Netflix, you would see something you almost certainly wanted to watch. Would you then just completely sell your entire digital soul, you know, everything about you to some company that's going to sell you advertising? To, and, you know, would you say no? People might. There's, they don't that's necessarily the have people the might, choice but at the A lot moment. of people will, I think. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of the... Um, we kind of sold our soul to the digital devil in a sense, because I mean, there's no limits now. And it's, I think it's damaging, you know, the, with all these conspiracy theories that are fueled by the way these social media companies work, how they profile us and how they recommend us stuff. I, I think, yeah, should they have that much power? Cause that's scary. That worries me than some MI6 agent looking for my web camera, you know, or what's he doing in his office. I'd rather not have my kind of mind kind of constantly kind of, honed by these social media networks to make me a consumer and then just completely undermine the fabric of society by getting people to watch flat earth videos all the time. Where do we draw the line? Where is that still okay to be, have that deal? Do we, do we really as a society know what the deal we have 
with the social media companies because you know how much do you know about yourself is shared online and that's where the real worry i have is for a kind of this you know this capitalist kind of what's the word they call it surveillance capitalism yes that's more scarier than just surveillance in my mind because I don't feel like I'm going to be... T- I don't think anyone is that interested in me, apart from the Russians, who obviously are very interested in me. <laughs> apart but from the I, Russians, yeah. I'm yes. not that worried about it. I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong. And that there is a camera looking at me, but I'm quite boring as well. You know, outside of this, I'm going to put my kids to bed. I mean, there's not much going on in my house tonight. I'm not going to be plotting after this with the CIA. <laughs> so, yeah, I, <laughs> that's my opinion. And is, is Russia the focus of your investigations full stop now i mean we've got a question here from somebody asking russia and china's relationship has grown closer would you would you be looking into china for example well about a year and a half ago i said i hope we don't have to keep doing russia stuff because i'm getting quite sick of it i'd like i love going to new areas you need new people to follow you well it's like we've been working on stuff to do with conservation and we were approached by a foundation who said, you know, would you like to look into this person involved with, I think it was mahogany theft, wood, stealing wood. And he was a fascinating case. And it revealed to us how much you could actually use open source information to investigate these things that are completely outside our normal kind of scope of conflict. We're continuing to do that. And it brings us in contact with organizations working in Africa. So it gives us a chance to kind of expand and work in those areas as well. So... If I we keep doing Russia, I will be genuinely disappointed. I mean, it's great stuff, and we're, we're probably been doing it for a while, but we want Russia to be kind of just 5% of Bellingcat, not 95% of it. So we definitely want to expand and move into other areas. Uh, we've got a question from Javier Kemper, who asks, what piece of information which you discovered shocked or surprised you the most? The Navani underpants thing was pretty shocking, both in its delivery and its form. It was just so bizarre hearing that on the audio. And keep in mind, we recorded this on the day we were launching the first article. So we knew immediately that we had a confession of an FSB officer on tape even before we released the first article. And then we had a whole week waiting for Putin's press conference, kind of rubbing our hands, going, oh, this will be good. And uh, just waiting for him to deny it. And then does he not only deny it, he confirms that FSB officers were following Navalny, effectively confirming the main part of our story, which we knew we had the FSB confession tape on. So that was a big moment. That was a memorable moment, just knowing that he, like Putin had almost walked into our trap that we had set for him. I mean, we couldn't believe it. It, it. He couldn't have said more if he said, yes, we poisoned him. That was like literally the only other thing he could say. And he was never going to say that. So getting him to say, oh, yeah, he was being followed because of his political, we were like, oh, thank God. And yeah, and that was just an incredible moment. Also with the Scriffle story in 2018, when on one day, I think we were on eight front pages of major UK newspapers. And that was like, oh my God, what have we done? Because that had never happened. Even with our work with MH17 in the Netherlands, I don't think we ever got something like that on all those front pages. And that really made us realise that the next couple of years would be quite different from the first four. Just gets bigger and bigger. We've got quite a few people asking, do you think big tech should be regulated? And if it was, how would that affect your investigations? I feel like there's no good answers to this. <laughs> no. How, yeah, I mean, you're basically asking big tech to say, you know, please throw away all your money so you can do what you're told. And because if they just, they have to figure out a way to exist where their entire revenue isn't based on turning, you know, creating a digital profile of you so they can sell stuff to you by finding out every single key you press ever. And it's just this insane collection of data. And that's what they, you know, if they could do that, they would do that. They just want to make their money. And we t- <laughs> but at the same time, how do you say, no, you can't have your money? Do we tax them? Do we say you could only have X percent of information about a person? And how do you measure that percentage? What It just is so complex. And I don't think policymakers are in the position to have any opinion on this whatsoever, or maybe a small handful, but it's such a complicated issue you really need to understand how the internet works at a very deep level, I think. And if you're a politician, it's very unlikely, apart from a few QAnon politicians in you know the US, that you've spent your entire life on the internet and understand 
it at that kind of very deep level they need. So I don't trust the people who would make those decisions to make that decision for me. And because of that, I think there needs to be a much more involvement in the, I don't know, the old men and women of the internet, maybe the people who actually understand the internet in these processes, because otherwise you're going to get, you know, the internet is made of tubes all over again, but this time is your liberty. And it's going to be completely, it'll be terrible and we'll regret it. And we won't know what the results are because it's like just, you know, I don't know. There was a, from a, a better call Saul when he, um, Saul's called a uh, chimpanzee with a machine gun. That's what it would be like to the internet because they have no idea what's going on. So I, I, I'm really worried about what they're going to do. There's um, quite a few mentioned QAnon. There's quite a few questions coming in about QAnon and how you think you counter a threat like that online. It's really difficult because I think it's one of these communities that grows from maybe one of the kind of core kind of functions of the internet is getting people who think the same thing as you together and then serving you content that you both believe is correct and then building these communities around this. And it's really hard to address that because you see it in all kinds of movements. You see it in the kind of chemical weapon truthers in Syria, MH17 truthers. You see it in flat earthers. You see it in people who think Bill Gates is putting microchips in vaccines. They all are kind of have that, they're, they're all kind of formed, I think, out of the same thing, which is a distrust of authority and a feeling of isolation from other people in their community because they just firmly believe in that. And they move on to these online communities where they basically just get fed um, just everything they want to know in the way they want to know it. So why is the earth flat? Oh, let's click on that video. Oh, that video looks, I click on it. 400 videos later, and you're on the street corner of a sign saying, you know, the earth is flat and that, you know, everyone else who says different is a conspiracy theorist. And that is the same as all these online communities. How on earth do you communicate with people like that? Because you're on the outside and they see you as at worst, you know, an idiot or sorry, at worst, a, you know, a evil bad guy who needs to die and at best an idiot, even if you're a family member. And you see this with QAnon and you see this with a whole range of movements and the question is, how do we fight that? Do you start banning QAnon everywhere? Is that encroaching on their free speech, even though free speech is clearly very damaging? Or do we have to wait to have a debate every time a capital building in another country gets stormed? Does it have to get that bad? We need to have a serious debate about this. Because it doesn't seem like that serious debate is happening at the moment. And it's just kind of going back to what it was before. And we need to be a lot more aware, I think, of a society of these groups and what they're not just weird fringe fringe groups now. They're edging into the mainstream. And if we can have politicians in the US who believe in this stuff serving in the House, then it, we've really gone too far. And if that starts leaking into Europe and, you know, you think about Brexit and you think what can start leaking in from America and if QAnon is that, we could be in trouble or a QAnon-like movement around something. I mean... QAnon raises so many questions because, you know, in your book, you, you, you write truth matters. And that's sort of at the heart of a lot of what you do. And yet, when you look at things like QAnon, you can sort of see that the internet, whilst it's helped people like you get closer to the truth, has also spread an awful lot of fake news. How on earth do you begin to control that? Is, is that something that does need to be more regulated by, by big I tech? It's difficult because really you, you want to target the people making the fake news. And it's often focused on, you know, Russia, saying Russia's lying to us, here's Sputnik, here's Russia today. But a lot of this fake information is coming from these communities. And that's why we have to figure out how we address those communities first and stop them from forming. Do we need to start saying Facebook, you can't recommend groups to people anymore for all groups because we don't know where these communities could kind of crop up next? Because it took so long to really take QAnon seriously. And it was only, you know, at this terrible moment that they were taken seriously. And we kind of don't need, if we keep coming to that movement moment again and again, what happens when they're successful? What happens when they do manage to get their hands on a representative and do manage to lynch them like they were planning to do? How do they, just, do we have to just keep repeating it? Because again, it just never seems to be taken seriously. And 
that's why I think we have to have communities like kind of the Bellicat community where we're looking, we're trying to build a, you know, a whole like volunteer hub. We want people working together on all sorts of different projects, because I think that's almost the only, we have to be proactive against kind of protecting the truth when we have, you know, this kind of societies online based on total untruths who believe they're the truth. It's the kind of, it's like a really weird time in history because we've never had a force that huge, I think, in the West before. And I don't think we really know how to handle it because we keep comparing it to kind of the rise of fascism, that kind of things. But it's not really the same because this online component, you know, it's like fascism 2.0. It's the problem. It's starting to rise. And I don't think we understand where it's coming from at a very fundamental level as a society. And certainly not when I speak to policymakers who think it's about Russia doing this to us when we're really doing it to ourselves. Um, frustratingly, we've completely run out of time because that raises so many more questions. I'd love to keep going. But Elliot, thank you so much for taking part in this event. And thank you to everyone who sent in questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get time to get round to them. We had hundreds of them coming in. So thank you for, for contributing and thank you for listening. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event.